It's just uh, fabulous. It's just fantastic to hear some of these news. I'm just so thankful. Uh, please, congratulations to some of these new parents. Um, and it's going to be a crazy ride, but through it all, uh, God's grace is sufficient. He is with us, and that really is our eternal hope. Um, so yeah, it's crazy. We are already in September, so this is actually the last sermon of our sermon series on Psalms, or in the Psalms, uh, Morning Into Dancing. So today's sermon is going to be the last one, and we're actually going to go through Psalm 150, which is the last psalm of the Psalter. And as you can tell from the title of this, today's sermon, to worship or not to worship. Uh, I don't know if it's obvious enough, but this is really a play on the most famous line of Shakespearean plays, Hamlet, to be or not to be. Um, some of us may know the context. Even if you don't know the context, I'm sure you've heard the phrase or the clause, to be or not to be. Hamlet is having suicidal thoughts. And really the idea that Hamlet is thinking about is, should I live to be? Or should I go ahead and take my life not to be? To be or not to be? That is the question. And to worship or not to worship is really a play on that famous Shakespearean line. And basically what this title suggests is if you want to be, if you want to live, you cannot help but to worship something. All of us, we were created to be worshipers. It's not a matter of whether or not you are a worshiper or not. It's a matter of what are you worshiping or not to worship, to be or not to be, to live or not to live is really essentially the same thing as to worship or not to worship. By virtue of us having consciousness, by virtue of us being alive, we are worshipers. We cease to be worshipers only when our lives are over, to worship or not to worship. Now, for some of us, we're thinking, especially for some of us who maybe not, never grew up in religion, who haven't grown up in the church, you might think, you might be offended based on what I just said. And it really depends, however, on our definition of worship. Because biblically speaking, from the first book of the Bible to the very last of the Bible, the Bible makes it very clear that all of us, we are truly worshipers. But the definition of worship is not I don't know, killing a bunch of animals, slaughtering them, and sacrificing it to some God. The definition of worship is not establishing some weird-looking shrine in your house and bowing down and, I don't know, burning incense to that shrine. Worship is simply something that we all do. And basically, a helpful definition is whatever you place your satisfaction, your joy, your value, your assurance, your security, your authority... All these things that you hold valuable, whatever you place those things in, that is what we worship. Now, let me just rephrase that. Let me just repeat that once more. Whatever you place your satisfaction, your joy, your peace, comfort, security, assurance, authority, whatever, whatever you place that in is what you are indeed worshiping. Now, when we think about it from that definition, I think many of us, whether or not we're atheist or Christian, grew up in the church, or this is your first time attending a church service, you would realize that based on that definition, we are all worshipers, aren't we? For many of us, we worship significant other relationships. We place so much of our emotional identity in these relationships. And yes, I wouldn't say that I look at my significant other as if he or she is my God.
But because I place so much of my emotional energy and so much of my emotional value in this person, in a sense, I am worshiping this relationship. Now, many of us, we're clever, we're sophisticated, so we're not going to put all of our eggs in one basket. We're not going to place all of our eggs in this one significant other relationship. So what do we do? We divide it up. We compartmentalize our lives. Instead of just worshiping our boyfriend or girlfriend or husband or wife, what we do is we have this, which the Bible would call an idol, and then we will go ahead and we will worship other things as well to supplement this. Because in this relationship, maybe I don't get financial security. Maybe I don't get this vocational high from this relationship. So what do I do? I then worship another thing, which is my career, my vocational aspirations, my academic programs, whatever those things might be. And from my employment, I worship that because I place so much of my financial security in that. And all of us, if we really think about it, if we're really honest with ourselves, we are worshiping so many different things. And even as our brother Terry led us into praise, Thank you for leading us into praise and even picking that song, Give Us Clean Hands. How all of us, we do bow down to idols, don't we? And yes, it's not like the history of biblical Israel where they are literally slaughtering animals and giving it to an idol or worshiping some man-made piece of wood or whatever. But for us, we do worship things like entertainment, things like job, things like significant other relationships, whatever it may be. We are all worshipers. It's not a matter of whether or not you're a worshiper. It's really a matter of whom are you or what are you worshiping. And the Bible makes clear that not only are we all worshipers, but the Bible also makes clear that God both demands and recommends that we worship Him and Him alone. It's both a commandment I'm going to break that down. And it's also a recommendation. And I'll break that down because some of us may think, what do you mean by recommendation? Isn't he God? Can't he just command us? And what I mean by that is God, by virtue of being who he is, being great, creator, holy, majestic, all these wonderful things, who he is intrinsically, inherently, his character, his internal qualities, he demands that we worship him. Because as much as we might get a high from our work, or as much as we may get a temporary relief from our relationships, only God is actually worthy of all of our allegiance, all of our worship, all of our trust. Because He is God after all. He demands it. He commands it. And He rightfully does. However, as I mentioned, not only does He demand, not only does He command it, but He also recommends it. And maybe recommending isn't the best word. But what I mean by recommending is he also tells us to worship him, not just because of who he is, almost like when my kids ask me, why are we doing this? How come I have to do this? I just say, because I said so. I'm your dad. Because I said so, you must do that. And trust me, if you are a parent, there are many moments where you need to do that. And it's very helpful for the dynamics of your relationship with your kids. But there are also moments where I need to recommend certain things for my kids. Instead of just saying, because I said so, because this is who I am, I have to articulate the reason and the rationale because it actually benefits them. No, you cannot eat that cookie before dinner, not simply because I said so, sometimes I do say that, 
But because if you eat that cookie before dinner, what's going to happen? You're going to get a stomach ache. And then what's going to happen? You're not going to eat much for dinner. And then what's going to happen? Later, right when you're about to go to sleep, you're going to be so hungry. And by then, it's going to be too late to eat anything. And then what's going to happen? If you're not going to eat your dinner, then chances are you're going to form bad habits. And you're going to stay being one of the smallest kids, not only in your class, but growing up, you're going to develop bad habits and you're not going to be able to be big. You're not going to be able to control your appetite, all these different. I break it down. I recommend you should not do this. You should instead do this. And God does something very similar to us as well. Not only should we worship him simply because he said so, simply because of that's who he is, but he also recommends, he says, you need to worship me. For your own benefit. Because all these other idols that we chase after, including myself, work, vocational aspirations, relationships, all these different things, hobbies, entertainment, the Toronto Raptors, the Toronto Maple Leafs, all those things, they eventually let us down. No matter how much you are in love with that person, that person is going to change. That person is limited. No matter how much you love that job, there's going to be a point where your skills are obsolete. There's going to be a point where that company is not doing so well financially. There's going to be a point where whatever you place your hope in is going to let you down. But God is saying, I will never let you down. He is the source of true joy, true love, true peace. So when he tells us we must worship him, yes, it's because he's holy. But also he recommends it to us for our own benefit. Because he knows that if we are not worshiping him ultimately, all these other idols, they will indeed leave us high and dry. Worship is fundamental to our existence. It's really a matter of whom are we worshiping. And the Bible makes it clear. There is only one person that we worship that will actually fulfill us. And that's also worthy of that worship. And that is God, God alone. We are all worshipers. And biblically speaking, it's pretty clear this is the way God created us. Um, I mean, even if you think about the way the Bible is constructed, the very first book of the Bible is Genesis. And the very last book of the Bible is Revelation. It's almost like the introduction and conclusion. And it's pretty uncanny how the way the Bible begins, Genesis, and the way the Bible ends, Revelation, there are so many interconnected themes. And if you think about the 60-some books of the Bible and all the different writers and all the different historical contexts that have been uh, producing these texts, and for the Bible to be that coherent, it's truly the Word of God. And one of the things that you see about us being worshipers, how God created us, is if you think about it, what is the very first thing that humans said? Adam. What is the very first thing that is recorded? It's actually in Genesis chapter 2. And it is a song. It is a, it is a poem. It is an expression of worship. When he sees Eve being created, he says, At final last, bone of my bones, I shall call you woman. Because out of my womb, you have been created. What is that short phrase that I just paraphrased? Is that is worship. That is praise. Adam is expressing his thankfulness to God as he is marveling Eve. That's the very first utterance that we see of any human documented in the Bible. Genesis chapter 2. And then Revelation, how does Revelation end? It's pretty trippy, I'll be honest. 
But one thing you'll notice in Revelation is there are so many songs in Revelation, almost chapter after chapter, so much singing. And what we see in the Bible is the way the Bible begins, the way the Bible ends, is there is singing, there is worship. And if you think about the biggest book of the Bible, Psalms, 150 Psalms, and all of those is, it's like the sacred playlist of hymns, praise songs to God. So worship is something that God has created us to be. Um, and it's, inc- it's just incredible to think, what was our existence like before sin entered the world? When we think about Adam, and even when we think about the relationship that he had with Eve prior to sin, worship was so natural to him. For us, worship is so difficult. And you know, if you've been with us, worship is being able to recognize, being able to submit to and celebrate God's character and his involvement in our lives. And that's why, Stephen, I love your prayer because one of the things that you prayed is may we recognize that God is doing something in our midst even though it's unexpected. That is a form of worship is when we recognize God's character, His involvement, the way that He is working in our lives, who He is, His trustworthiness, the ways that He provides for us. When we recognize that, when we submit to that, when we celebrate that, that is truly worship. And we see Adam do that like I mentioned in Genesis chapter 2. And if you think about before the fall, imagine what our existence must have been like. I'm just trying to think. Imagine what Adam's existence must have looked like. Everything that he did, every waking moment, as he was working the ground, as he was laboring the fields, he was recognizing, he was doing those actions in recognition, in submission to, and in celebration of God's character and his involvement. When he saw Eve for the first time and when he was interacting with his wife and having, I don't know, a relationship with in his marital relationship, he couldn't help as much as he was seeing Eve. He couldn't help but to see God behind Eve. He was thinking, wow, Eve, you're beautiful. But this beauty was created by God. Every time he saw Eve, it was simultaneously, I'm enjoying Eve and I'm also enjoying God. Because I recognize, I submit to, I celebrate God's character and his involvement. And his life was worshipful. When he was working and when he was experiencing the fruit of his labor, he was thinking, wow, this is the way God designed creation. This is the way God designed the economics of labor. The seeds that I sow bear fruit. I get a sense of God's character, how faithful he is, all these wonderful things. And his existence was worshipful. And then sin entered into the world. And if you've been with us, the way we define sin is sin is the opposite of worship. Instead of recognizing, instead of submitting to, instead of celebrating God's character and His involvement, what do we do? We suppress, we distort, we reject God's character and His involvement. And then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve's their relationship, it goes down haywire. Eve is now rejecting distorting, suppressing. Adam is now rejecting, distorting, suppressing God's character and his involvement. So Adam let Eve, he was, an innocent, he was a, a, a passive bystander. He let Eve be deceived by the serpent. Eve succumbed to the serpent's temptation. They ate the forbidden fruit. Their marriage now was broken with distrust. They're blaming each other. And now the work of Adam's hand is now not producing 
the fruit that it once did. Now Eve is going to experience marital strife and pains with during childbirth. All these things, sin has basically cursed us because now we have a tendency. Now our default mode of thinking is not recognizing, submitting to, and celebrating God's character and involvement, but the opposite, distorting, suppressing, and flat out rejecting God's character and involvement. And that really fundamentally is the ultimate problem in anything, in our relationships, in our work, even in our mental health, everything because of sin. Now, what does all this have to do with Psalm 150? Is Psalm 150 is the last psalm of the Psalter, as I mentioned earlier. And in some ways, it's such a great capstone because it is a sheer joyous jubilation, an expression of worship and praise to God. So although we live in this sin-fallen world where now our default mode of thinking is to dis- distort, suppress, and reject God's character and involvement, now there are moments where we can have glimpses where we are not only recognizing God's character, not only are we submitting to the ways that He is involved in our lives, but we are celebrating who God is. And just as our brother Terry led us, man, that is a joyous thing. And Psalm 150 is one of the prototypical blueprints of an expression of praise and worship to God. So we're going to break all of this down. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. Um, as we typically do, if you have any questions or prayer requests, or if you want to share any prayers, then please text away. Uh, the phone number is going to be there throughout the service. And all these messages are anonymous. And this is just a way for our worship to be much more relational, engaging, meaningful. And we also believe that this is our way of making our worship to God even more glorious to Him. So please uh, feel free to message anything at that number. Let me just read Psalm 150 in its entirety. It's only six verses, but um, don't let that mislead you. There is actually a lot of depth to Psalm 150. So let me read it in full first. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Wow. Psalm 150. Only six verses, but so jam-packed. And it is such a fitting way to end the 150 Psalms of the Psalter. Let's break it down. There are five things that I think we can really glean from what is worship, what is praise. And I'll be honest, these five things, they should cut to us. These five things should further expose how, man, we desperately need God's grace in order to be true worshipers, in order to give God praise and worship that He deserves. Um, So at the end of this, we're going to spend some time praying. Holy Spirit, give us the ability to praise you like Psalm 150. This is the way God intended us to live and through the power of the gospel, which I'll unpack, it enables us to overcome our default sinful tendency of distorting, suppressing, and rejecting God's character and His involvement in our lives. So let's break this down one step at a time. Uh, The first point, like I mentioned, there's gonna be a total of five points. The first point is so fundamental and it is not surprising at all. 
it's actually uncanny how this first point comes up so many times throughout scripture is, did you notice, praise the Lord, praise God not only in his sanctuary, but also praise God in his mighty heavens. And let's just pause right there for the first point. Praise God everywhere, but specifically, I need to praise God in his sanctuary and in his mighty heavens. Now, what do these red things highlighted, what do they signify? Sanctuary is a very interesting word because it doesn't really mean sanctuary. It really means that sacred place. It's almost like the forbidden place, the holy of holies, the place that nobody has access to. He's saying, I'm going to praise God in this sacred, holy, forbidden place. I'm going to praise God in his muddy heavens. And for the psalmist, we don't know who wrote this psalm. This is a very audacious thing because who are we as humans as limited, as finite as we are, as we talked about in Psalm 90, as sinful, as rebellious, and wicked as we are, as we also talked about in Psalm 90, who are we that we get to praise God in this forbidden, sacred place of His sanctuary? Who are we to be able to climb the clouds and be able to access His mighty heavens? We don't deserve this. And the point of Psalm the first verse is whenever we think about worship, whenever we think about praising God, glorifying God, we need to be reminded, we need to be soberly aware and overwhelmed by the fact, God, you are so holy. There is an infinite chasm gap between who you are, not just where you are, but who you are and who I am, who we are as humans. This right now, let, let me just break it down to practical implication right now. Where we are right now in this Zoom, YouTube, whatever, I know it feels weird. We are in his sanctuary. We are in that forbidden sacred place where in biblical Israel, they had to sacrifice a lot of animals. They had to shed a lot of blood in order to get to God's sanctuary in order to be able to experience what it's like to be in his mighty heavens. And yes, we often get deceived because in our modern society, when we go to church, even before the pandemic, we maybe forget this is sacred. This is forbidden. This is audacious. Even right now, I know some of us, we are sitting on our beds. That's fine. Physical location isn't really the ultimate thing that verse 1 is getting after. The ultimate thing that verse 1 is getting after is in your heart, in your mind, do you recognize how radical and how audacious it is that we are in His sanctuary? We are in His presence. And this dovetails so nicely into the things that we've been seeing throughout the psalm series. Is Are we taking this gift of worship for granted? Are we taking His holiness for granted? We need the Holy Spirit. Remind me of what I am getting myself into. I'm not just doing sing-along time with Terry or Susan. No, this, I am joining the angelic chorus, praising God in His sanctuary, in the place that is utterly sacred and holy. The second thing that we see is starting in verse 2 is praise him for his mighty deeds. He has done many mighty deeds. He has done extraordinary things. 
but also praise him according to his excellent greatness. God has done a lot of things. He is worthy of our worship based on his actions, past, present, and future, based on what he has done, worthy of our worship. At the same time, do you notice in the second part of verse 2, I'm not just going to praise you for your mighty deeds, but I'm also going to praise you according to your excellent greatness. In other words, even if you've never done those mighty deeds, simply because of who you are, how great you are, I need to worship and praise you. And if you've been with us, this is how I phrase, we need to praise God not just for his involvement in our lives, his mighty deeds, his actions, but also his character, his unchanging character, his internal, internal qualities. He's just simply great. That is who he is. We need to praise God for both. And that's what we see here in verse 2. I loved our brother Terry when he shared with us, why do we worship just a few minutes ago? And yes, there is a tendency where we own, our worship to God is based on what have you done for me lately? Isn't that true? If circumstantially our lives are not going according to our expectation, isn't it so true that our worship, our praise of God also suffer? Our worship, our faith, our relationship with God cannot be based solely on what he has done, what he will do, and what he's currently doing. It needs to be both his involvement, but also his character. If we only focus on his involvement, what have you done lately, then we're, we're basically becoming consumers. We are basically treating God like a vending machine. And ironically enough, we are changing that relationship where no longer is he God and we are worshipers. But we are changing it, saying, I am God, and God, you need to meet my ends. You need to meet my needs. That's what happens when our worship, our relationship with God is too lopsided on what have you done for me lately. Now, the other end is if our worship, our relationship with God is only based on his character, only based on his inherent intrinsic qualities, and we're not really thinking about his involvement in our life, what happens there? is then our relationship with God becomes stale. Lack of intimacy. Everything is theoretical. Everything is up in here, head knowledge. And nothing is experiential. We're not really engaged with Him with our whole being, which includes our emotions. So we need both. We need to recognize, man, God, your character, you're trustworthy. You are great. You're holy. Just simply because of who you are. You don't ever have to do anything for me. Simply because of who you are, you're worthy of my allegiance, of my worship. And at the same time, not only this is your character, but man, you are a God who is involved in my life. You are working in my life. And yes, circumstances are not that great right now. But I trust that you are doing something beyond my wisdom, beyond my expectations. We need both. And when we think about the psalmist and when we think about the history of biblical Israel, Man, they praise God for both. They praise God. God, you are the one who delivered us out of Egypt. I can't believe it. We were a nation of slaves. And Egypt was the world power. And somehow, miraculously, those ten plagues, you anointed Moses, who was such an unlikely figure to lead us. But because of your involvement, because of your character, you delivered us. Thank you, God. We worship you. We praise you. 
Not only did you do that, but it rem it enabled us to learn about your character, how you are a God who opposes the proud, but you give grace to the humble. And all throughout Israel's history, there are moments, you read the judges, for some of us who follow the Bible reading plan, you know exactly what I'm talking about. From king after king, prophet after prophet, being thrown into exile and captivity, being delivered out of exile and captivity, every era, historical phase of biblical history, of biblical Israel's history, they were able to praise God for God countless mighty deeds and the countless ways that God reminded them of his character, of his excellent greatness. So Psalm 150 is an expression of that. But we also know that unfortunately, as much as we can learn great things from the history of biblical Israel, we also know that they ultimately failed. Ultimately, the Old Testament ends with them not having any type of assurance of salvation, any type of assurance that their relationship with God will actually get deeper in love rather than sinking more into rebellion and wickedness. The way the Old Testament ends is pretty dismal. And we are seeing that right now, even in the prophets, if you're participating with us in the Bible reading plan. And therefore, verse 2, when we think about God's mighty deeds, when we think about His excellent greatness, it culminates, both of those things culminate. They find their, their peak, their ceiling, in not Exodus, even though that made a great movie. Not in the Babylonian and Assyrian and Persian deliverance, which again is historically significant, but it finds its peak in what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because when God looked at biblical Israel, and when God looks at us, He knows that yes, there are some high moments, but He recognizes at the end of the day, we cannot truly worship and praise God the way that He demands and recommends. We just can't. It's too inconsistent. We are just too mired in our sin, that sinful tendency where we are constantly distorting, rejecting, and suppressing His character and His involvement. So what does God do? The greatest mighty act is He sends His one and only Son. And He says, this sin needs to be paid for because again, He is holy, as we saw in verse 1. Somebody needs to pay for the sin and it's not going to be enough of those animal sacrifices. It's going to be the sacrifice of my own Son. Jesus Christ. And through His blood, all of us, if we submit to this gospel message, all of us, we have been forgiven of our sin, of that tendency that I just described. And not only that, but Jesus resurrected, so His Spirit is alive, which He deposited into our hearts. So that His Spirit is working in our hearts, transforming us, conforming us to become more like Jesus, so that instead of having that sinful tendency, now we have a worshipful tendency where we have traces and remnants of what I described earlier. Where when we look at that baby, when we look at our wife, when we look at our jobs, when we look at even the clouds these days, if you've noticed, in at least out in the Mississauga, Oakville area, wow, the clouds are beautiful. When we look at creation, when we look at anything, we are thinking, wow, I recognize that this is God's provision. God created those clouds. God painted those clouds in the sky.
God is the one who created this beautiful newborn baby. It is truly a miracle. God created my lovely husband, my wife. God is the one who opened the door for this job. God is the one who is working in my life so that I can excel in these areas, so that I can become more like Jesus. And it's through the power of the Spirit that enables us to be true worshipers so that worship is not just about singing, even though singing and music are very important, but worship becomes our existence in our everyday life, every second life, every nanosecond life. We're constantly confronted with the fact that, wow, everything comes from God. I recognize this. I submit to this. And I'm going to celebrate that God is working in my life. So that's the second point, is the psalmist. We need to praise God not just for his involvement, but his involvement and his character in our lives. We need the Holy Spirit to enable us to do that. Um, let's take a look. Verse 3 and 4, we're going to clump, clump these together. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Uh, this list is not exhaustive. And it sounds a little repetitive. And these two verses basically represent the psalmist is going buck wild at this point. Because he's thinking, wow, God is so holy. And He's inviting me into His sacred, forbidden, holy sanctuary. God's involvement in his character is amazing. What he's done in Exodus, what he's done in the captivity, what he's done especially in Jesus, what he's going to do when Jesus returns. Wow, God is amazing. And when we respond to this, the psalmist is thinking, oh my goodness, I can't just praise him with a trumpet. I can't just praise him with a lute and a harp. I can't just praise him with a tambourine and this. I can't just praise him with strings. About. I need to praise him with all hands on deck. I need to go extra, extra on God's worship. Because when I think about His holiness, when I think about His character, when I think about His involvement, when I think about what Jesus has done for us, what can express adequately the type of worship and praise that this amazing, holy, and yet intimate, loving God deserves? This guy is sparing no resources. And trust me, this list is not exhaustive. This list could have gone on into infinity. And the thing that we see here practically is, wow, when was the last time our worship to God has been extravagant in this way? Isn't it so true that whenever we think about worshiping God, isn't it so sad that we're always thinking about the bare minimum? What can I do in order for that checkbox to be checked off? Woo, I made it. Woo, I barely made it to church on time. I did this. I'm at least going to Sunday service once a week. I'm at least just doing this. Oh, I read the Bible for five minutes. Isn't it so true that that is a type of worship and praise that we offer God? It's sad. We desperately need, I myself included, I need the Holy Spirit. Remind me of who this God is. And when we are reminded of who this God is and what He has done through Jesus Christ, we cannot help but to give God extravagant worship. And I'm not saying that everything needs to be over the top all the time. But what I am saying is there must be instances, periodically, where we just want to give God just something special, something more, something over the top. 
Actually, another way of looking at these two verses is it also implies that everybody has a part in God's worship. It's not just the trumpet player. It's not just the harpist. It's not just one particular instrument. Every, there's diversity in worshiping and praising God. And another practical implication of this is every single one of us, you have a, play, you have a part to play in worshiping and praising God in your distinctive way. You can give God glory and worship that is meaningful to Him. I know for some of us, we're discouraged because we're thinking, oh, I'm not gifted. I don't have that voice, that platinum voice. I can't re- I'm not very musical. Or if you look at my relational baggage, my family dynamics, I cannot give God worship. But that's not true. And I don't think that's entirely the point of verses 3 and 4. But verses 3 and 4 at least suggest that there is diversity. Everybody has a part to play. Your brokenness, your whatever thing that is setting you back, that might be the very thing that gives God meaningful worship. All of us, we have a part to play. Um, And even one of the announcements is, I know that the praise team and the AV team, they're looking for people to help out and Music and singing are supremely important. It's not just fill-in time during praise work, uh, during our worship service. If you look at it biblically speaking, there is so much references to music. Music is, in, is apparently God regards it very highly. So again, if you have even an inkling of a desire, I want to give you a wholehearted encouragement. Just talk to Terry and Susan and see, maybe you have a part to play. Maybe you're underestimating your situation. And you have a significant part that you can offer up to God. Uh, The fourth point that we see in Psalm 150 is praise Him with sounding cymbals, but also praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. That sounds very repetitive. And when we first read verse 5, you're thinking, okay, like, um, tell me something new. Like, this doesn't sound like it's adding much information to Psalm 150. But verse 5 is very interesting. There is actually a lot of depth. Because why would the psalmist repeat praise him not only with sounding symbols but with loud clashing symbols as well? Is the point here is not only are we going to praise him with just the way symbols are supposed to be played. Not only am I supposed to worship God being, let's say I am classically trained to play symbols. I'm going to play symbols appropriately. But I'm also going to praise God not only with sounding symbols but with loud clashing cymbals. If you look at the original Hebrew phrase of the second red highlight, is that is just chaotic cymbal crashing. I don't even know if you consider that music at that point. It is just loud noise. And what verse 5 is suggesting is, yes, our praise, we need to use music. We need to use different instruments. And yes, there are other parts of the Bible where we need to be highly skilled in these instruments. But verse 5 also suggests when we are worshiping God, when we are in the presence, when we think about the audacity of us being in the mighty heavens and that we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus and all these wonderful things, how can we contain our emotions? How can we restrain our intensity? It's not just sounding cymbals where it goes along with the beat or the measure of the song. But it's also loud clashing symbols where I'm just so lost in worshiping God. I'm so lost. I'm so amazed. I'm just so bewildered by His grace and His love for me that I cannot help 
but to give loud clashing symbols. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit. God's wor- God, worshiping God is not just with my tongue, I'm praising you, or with my mind, I'm reading. Worshiping God is all of us, which includes our emotions, which includes our intensity level. We need to ask the Holy Spirit, give us moments where I just lose myself and I'm just crying out. Whether it's crying out out of sheer jubilation or out of just sheer desperation. One of the highlights of this pandemic for me has been those prayer meetings that we've had. And one of the things I loved about those prayer meetings is, man, I could just, we could just pray and just let it all hang before God. And that pleases him. Verse 5, he considers loud clashing symbols, intense emotional worship to be pleasing. Obviously, that emotion and intensity needs to be balanced with sound convictions and doctrines, all those things. But it doesn't mean that you throw the baby with the bathwater just because there have been bad experiences where there have been overly emotional worship. It doesn't mean that that's not what God is looking for. God wants both. God wants all of us, our minds as well as our intensity and our emotions as well. Uh, The last thing is verse 6. And this is a very famous phrase. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I'm just imagining the psalmist as he's walking through, I don't know, the wilderness or walking through his garden and he sees animals when he sees camel he says are you breathing if you are breathing you need to worship god that little insect if there is breath coming out of your bodily existence you need to praise god i can just imagine this psalmist he is just so overwhelmed overtaken by god's character and his involvement that he is just looking at everything his family members whatever and he's thinking everything that has breath we need to praise the lord there is no other appropriate response not only does god command it and demand it because he is holy and is rightfully is and be based according to his excellent greatness but also because he is so loving and because we know that there is no other thing that can satisfy us that can fulfill us than worshiping god we can try to worship like i mentioned all these disparate idols those things will leave us high and dry and he's saying man i've experienced this sheer ecstasy of worshiping God, you know what? Everybody needs to do this. That's why missions exist. That's why we do things like evangelism. That's why we do things like community. That's why we do things like accountability. That's why we do things like discipleship, mentorship. All these things fall under the umbrella of worshiping God. All these things, discipleship, mentorship, missions, all these different things, they are not the ultimate thing. The ultimate thing is responding to God's character and development. And when we have done that, you cannot help but to say, everybody needs to do this. And another thing that I think the Holy Spirit needs to do in our hearts is when was the last time that our desire for God to be magnified was so deep that it wasn't enough for it to just be expressed within our hearts. But we're thinking, my entire community needs to worship God. This entire region 
this entire city, this entire province, this entire country, this entire world needs to worship God. And I'm not asking these questions to make anybody feel guilty. Because I'll be honest, I fall short in these as well. I'm raising these questions because these are all opportunities for us to repent and for us to desperately ask the Holy Spirit in these specific ways, I fall short, make me more like Jesus. Please, only you can do this. Uh, so to kind of wrap up and to kind of give us an opportunity to respond to Psalm 150, here is a way to kind of summarize. Psalm 150 is, many. there are many ways that we can take on Psalm 150, but when I think about our congregation and for this specific situation, I think Psalm 150 should be a great way for us to repent and to ask the Holy Spirit to do these things. Maybe all these things or maybe one of these things resonated with you in particular. Ask the Holy Spirit to bring you to all for being in God's holiness as we saw in verse 1. Ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to recognize, submit, and celebrate both God's character and His involvement in your life. Not only His mighty acts and deeds, but also His excellent greatness. Ask the Holy Spirit to make your worship to God extravagant. Maybe not all the time, but there needs to be moments where it is extra, where it is over the top, where you just cannot help but to just exhaust all resources, all hands on deck. Get the harp, get the lute, get the tambourine, get everything, because our God deserves it. And to play your part in worshiping God. At the same time, there's diversity in worship. And do not let Satan convince you that there is something wrong with you so that you cannot worship God. No, you have a part to play. Ask the Holy Spirit to enable you to play that part. Allow you to worship God with intensity and with your emotions. I don't want us to try to conjure things up and make it contrived and artificial. But let's ask the Holy Spirit. Just be honest. Man, I feel like I've been a walking zombie. I feel like, man, I'm just going through the motions. Nothing is really registering. Holy Spirit, I need you. Forgive me, because I know that it's not right. Forgive me, because you are that holy God, and for, for you to sacrifice your son for me as a sinner, how can I not be stirred with emotion? But this is where I am. Please help me. Have Give me moments where I can respond with not just my mind, but with all of me where I can have those moments of intensity because you deserve it. And fifthly, ask the Holy Spirit to give you a passion, such a passion for God's glory that you desire all things to worship Him. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, um, we are at a, at a place, not just you know from a biblical standpoint, we are at a place where our default mode of thinking is sin. Anti-worship, not worship. Instead of submitting, recognizing, and celebrating God's character and involvement, our default mode is sin. It's to distort it, suppress it, reject it. And it's only because, like I mentioned earlier, what Jesus Christ has done. The A, that slate is wiped clean. But B, not only did he die to make that slate clean, but he resurrected we're not by ourselves. Jesus didn't just do his mighty act of deed, his mighty deed 2,000 years ago, and he checked out and said, peace, I'll see you guys. 
around the corner or on the other side or whatever. No, he, he, res- he resurrected. And he said, I'm going to give you my spirit. Left to yourself. I can wipe your slate clean. But the very next second, you're going to fall back into your sinful tendency because that's our default mode. But he said, I'm going to give you my spirit. So it's not just you living in your heart. You're not the one in the driver's seat, but my spirit is going to be in the driver's seat. It's going to be living in every single one of us who submit to the gospel, to the lordship and authority of Jesus Christ. And this spirit that is living inside of us is what enables us to overcome our default sinful mode of thinking and progressively, gradually, slowly but surely have a worshipful tendency where we are able to recognize, where we are able to submit to, where we are able to celebrate God's character and involvement every second of our lives. So these five questions or these five prayer things, they're not here to make us feel guilty. I mean, it should lead us to repentance. But ultimately, it's for us to tap into the resource of the Holy Spirit that God has given us. Let's pray. Ask the Holy Spirit to make us true worshipers of God. So at this time, um, I also want to remind us of the text message, um, the phone number. So if you have any prayer requests, if you have any questions, if you have any prayers that you want to pray for our community or for yourself, or even this province, when we think about even what's happening with the teachers, man, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> we need to pray for them. We need to pray that as stressful as, it's, as this is, that they can recognize, submit to, and celebrate God's character and his involvement. And maybe in that, they do need to speak up. I don't know. I don't want to get too caught up. But all this today is to give you ideas of different ways that we can pray for our community and what's going on. Or even Augie and Christina and and the birth of Micah. Let's pray that every single time they change their diaper, every single time they hold Micah in their hands, yes, Micah is cute, but ultimately, let's pray that they recognize, they submit to, and they celebrate God's character and involvement as they hold that beautiful baby. So I'm just going to give us a moment. If you want to respond via text, please do so. Uh, If you're not, then again, if we can get into a posture of worship, maybe standing, placing your hand over your heart, I just want to give us an opportunity to just respond to the Holy Spirit. And maybe I'll place these uh, these five points. If there's anything in these five points or anything outside of these five points from Psalm 150 that you feel like God is placing on your heart, I just want to give us a moment to respond, to interact with Him um, before we move into the next part of our worship service.